It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello and welcome to Locked On Vikings. My name is Luke Braun. I am your host. I am your pal. And I'm the kid you copied off in math class. Welcome to another week of the show. You can follow the show on Twitter at Locked On Vikings. You can follow me on Twitter at Luke Braun NFL. And we got a lot to talk about. There was a wild card weekend of playoff games that was very defensive, very uh, established the run e, uh, and it sets up for a pretty interesting divisional round. So we'll talk about that, and we'll talk a little bit about the offensive coordinator hunt, latest updates, and kind of the ideas that are going around. So we're actually going to start with the second part of that. We're going to talk a little bit about offensive coordinator. Uh, During the playoffs, you may have missed it as you were watching football, uh, a rumor went out that said that the Vikings were interested in Mike Malarkey as offensive coordinator, and this kind of made the rounds. It also posited that, yeah, they're not going to bring back Kevin Stefanski. So you're probably listening to this on Monday, which means that tomorrow is the deadline for Kevin Stefanski. That's when his contract is officially up, and he will no longer be, in any official capacity, employed by the Minnesota Vikings. Now, there's nothing stopping the Vikings from maybe letting him go search for a couple days and then hiring him on Friday or whatever. But if they kind of make that decision to let him go, chances are that means that they've made the decision to proper let him go rather than just let him test the waters or whatever. So there's a lot of other names out there, people who might be interested in the job, people looking for work and and so on. So I think it's wise to maybe just go over some of them. There was an awesome article at 247 Sports. I'll link it in the show notes. I'll find that rumor too. Link it down in the show notes so you can see for yourself. Uh, And it went over some of the interesting offensive coordinator candidates out there and maybe reasons why they did or didn't uh, fit with the Vikings. So I wanted to go over some of the names and what I think of of that. And if you have any other names that you were thinking, uh, please tweet them at LockedOnVikings or just at me directly at LukeBronNFL. I would love to hear from all of you on this. So first, let's talk about the big name, the one that has been talked about all weekend, and that's Mike Malarkey. So for those of you who are unfamiliar, Mike Malarkey, we last saw him as the head coach of the Tennessee Titans, and he got pretty toxic and radioactive in that stint, so much so that he actually had to pull like the Norv Turner, Jeff Fisher, take a year off. Uh, he didn't work anywhere in football in 2018. He just kind of sat on the sidelines. Um, that is kind of how we think of him now, but I think it makes sense to kind of look at his whole tenure, and unfortunately for him, it doesn't get a lot better. He had the pre-Roethlisberger Steelers, those old uh, Charlie Batch units. He had a pretty good stint with Atlanta right when they hired uh, Matt Ryan after that whole uh, Bobby Petrino thing where, you know, Mike Zimmer called him like a gut, a gutless profanity. Uh, and, and they kind of cleaned house after that. Mike Malarkey ended up being the offensive coordinator for like four, four or five years in Atlanta and really had some success with Matt Ryan. So credit to him for that. And in 2012, it got him a head coaching job in Jacksonville that went horribly and he was one and done. He later got another head coaching job in Tennessee and we've all, we all saw how that went. So kind of Unless you want to only think of him as the guy in Atlanta that was successful with, like, Matt Ryan and Roddy White in his prime and all that, uh, there's not really a lot, in my opinion, that makes him an exciting candidate. Uh, But there's some other stuff that's kind of interesting, especially that was brought up in that 247 article, which is really well put together. Uh, One name that I've seen come up a little bit is Jeremy Bates. He's currently under contract with the Jets, so I kind of doubt that that would happen but he's been getting head coaching interviews, and he would maybe leave for those. But if he were to try to leave for an offensive coordinator interview, he could block, uh, the Jets could block him 
similarly to how the Vikings blocked Kevin Stefanski. So I'm not sure if that would go on, uh, but it would definitely be an interesting thing to look at if he did perhaps show interest in leaving the Jets or voiding his contract or whatever. Another name that was brought up was Kevin Zampezi. He was the quarterback's coach for the Cincinnati Bengals for a really long time, from 2003 to 2015, which means that you can kind of credit him at least a little bit for the development of Carson Palmer and kind of the career he ended up having after he left Cincinnati, and also a little bit of uh, the Andy Dalton years and kind of got the best out of Andy Dalton, um, including that 2015, you know, MVP quote-unquote style season, although we talked about it in the Hugh Jackson discussion last week, that that's probably not so much on the coaching as it was on the talent. Still, he has familiarity with Mike Zimmer, right? They were on the sta- on the same staff together, so they were in the building together. So I could definitely see him being brought in for an interview. Another name that's a little radioactive because he was fired in the middle of this season, but uh, Nathaniel Hackett for the Jacksonville Jaguars could be an interesting name. A little bit of that stink has worn off since the Jaguars really just continued to fail and firing him really didn't prove to fix anything. And he was kind of behind the eight ball in Jacksonville, right? He was stuck with Blake Bortles, who I think we can all kind of agree is not going to be the best weapon for an offensive coordinator to use. And he was also kind of stuck in this world where the Jaguars wanted to be a team that that, like runs through Leonard Fournette. Um, that kind of uh, lets me believe at least a little bit on a cursory look that maybe Nathaniel Hackett is the kind of guy who could make a difference in Minnesota, but at the same time, pressure to run more, if that's what sunk him in Jacksonville, well, that's not going to be any better for him in Minnesota, so it might just sink him here as well. So he's not as exciting of a name in my opinion, but I could definitely see them bringing him in for a look just because, you know, the, the stink of Jacksonville may have washed off as more of that blame gets piled onto Blake Bortles. I haven't seen a lot of talk about this, but it does make a lot of sense. Uh, There's a reasonable, a non-zero chance, in my opinion at least, that the Vikings would promote Todd Downing. He was a play caller in Oakland not too long ago. However, they really had the pitchforks out for him, so much so that I remember when the Vikings hired Todd Downing to be, I think he was a quarterback's coach at the time, and then he very quickly had to move to tight ends coach when Tony Sperano passed away and they had to reshuffle everything. But I remember when he was hired, the Raiders fans on all of those posts were like, aha, you got the toxic Todd Downing. They really, really didn't like him at the end. And I think they blamed him for a lot of Oakland's struggles down the stretch in 2017 when Derek Carr was like clearly not the guy that we thought he was. Um, But at the same time, that one stint was only one season in an Oakland Raiders team that was pretty out of sorts. You know, they fired Jack Del Rio after that season. They fired Reggie McKenzie a year later. They've now turned over the keys to John Gruden, and they're starting to, like, rebuild from scratch. So I could definitely see the Vikings looking at that situation and saying, hey, maybe that's not representative of who you are as a play caller, and we've had you in the building, and we're familiar with you, and, and we'll promote you in the interest of stability. That said, I think if they were interested in stability, Kevin Stefanski is a better look uh, and, and considering they already gave him the interim, it would not make a lot of sense for them to let that guy go and then promote Todd Downing just because of stability. So I'm not sure if I see that happening, but it is an idea and something that might be worth keeping in the back of your heads. Um, there are some other names on that list. Again, please go check it out in the show notes. It's really good. Sean Ryan was a name that they looked at. He was the quarterback's coach in uh, Houston or is the quarterback's coach in Houston. He's getting a lot of credit for Deshaun Watson. There's Jim Caldwell, who's been a head coach. You know him, I think, as an offensive coordinator. The last kind of impression we have of him is turning around the Ravens in the 2012 season after they fired Cam Cameron and they went to a Super Bowl. So there's a little bit of a a gold sheen on him there, at least at the offensive coordinator position. We'll keep monitoring this as it goes on, but for now, we're going to go take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk about the wildcard games that happened on Saturday and Sunday. See you in a second. 
Hi, this is David Locke, the CEO of the Lockdown Podcast Network. In this crazy, unprecedented, and unnerving time, I know we're all living our lives a little differently. I thought we had some of our sponsors over the time that might be able to help you out. So we've reached out to them to get you specific offers. Postmates is giving our listeners $100 of free delivery credit for their first seven days. Start your free deliveries, download the Postmates app, and use the promo code LOCKEDONNBA. Anxiety, stress, need something to calm yourself down? The Calm app is available for you. 40% off to our listeners at calm.com slash locked on NBA. Stuck at home, want fitness? Echelon Fit has been a sponsor of ours. And you can go to echelonfit.com slash L-O-N-B-A. And if you're looking to add some new knowledge and get a little smarter in your free time, Masterclass, or at least your time at home, masterclass.com slash P-E-R is offering 15% off. If you missed any of those, go to lockdownpodcast.com slash offers. That's lockdownpodcast.com slash offers. Thank you very much for tuning in to Lockdown Podcast Network. We hope to be here for you to give you a relief and uh, respite from all the other news. And thanks very much. Be safe and practice your social distancing. And we are back. So there was a, uh, a round of playoff games. Let's talk about them. We will start uh, chronologically. We'll do the Saturday games first, and then we'll take a break, and then do the Sunday games. Uh, so let's start with Colts-Texans. Uh, the Colts went into Houston, and they just undressed a divisional rival, beat them 21-17, made Deshaun Watson's playoff debut look really, really bad, and that's going to be a long offseason for him. And for Texans fans, you know, debating whether or not it was, like, their fault. Um, and, and I think there is a principle at play here that really held true throughout the entire wild card, card weekend, and it's just that it's so hard to win your first playoff game for Deshaun Watson. And then we'll talk about it more later. But for Mitch Trubisky and Lamar Jackson, it's just a, a really hard thing to do to come into the playoffs and win when you haven't been there before. It's a different energy in the playoffs. And ask any player about this. I remember this is going to be really obscure, but there was a podcast a couple of years ago with Nate Burleson and uh, somebody else where he really talked about from a, a player's perspective what it's like in the playoffs. And he actually recalled the lead-up to the 2004 game in Lambeau, the, the Randy Moss Moon game. He was a part of that. Uh, and he just he, it was his first time in the playoffs, and it was just like there's a different energy. Everybody's working a little harder. Everyone's a little more focused. And I think that energy affects some people more than others. It's why you get players like Joe Flacco, who are just something else in the playoffs. They're just a different person entirely. Or things like Peyton Manning, who was kind of notorious for a long time for really struggling in the playoffs. And I think that kind of thing happened to Deshaun Watson this time. And we'll see if he's able to get back and win the division again or get in the playoffs again. We'll, we'll see him play better than he played this time because that, that kind of first playoff game jitters will maybe be worn off or he'll just be more used to the environment. But that struggle is really what I would like chalk that up to. Um, and, and just going, touching back on some of the things that I talked about previewing the game, they really needed to stop T.Y. Hilton, and they didn't. Um, however, Pierre Desir, somebody I called out in the preview of somebody who could maybe limit Nuke, had a pretty good game um, and was able to limit him at least enough to, to keep the offense from being able to move the ball. But ultimately, I think, you know, as we talked about in the preview, there were these key moments, like especially in the tren- trenches, that... The Colts just had an advantage, and even though it's in a divisional game and on the road, I think when you're in the division, you have that familiarity. It's kind of an equalizer. Um, I, I think, really, if I were to point out a key matchup where this one, the tide of this one turned, it's that the Colts' tackles are better than you think. There's a lot of attention being paid to Quentin Nelson, but Quentin Nelson wasn't often going up against J.J. Watt and Jadeveon Clowney. It was the tackles, and they're better than you think, and I think that's what their best chance to go into Kansas City and beat the Chiefs next weekend is going to be on that same protection. So, moving on, 
We all turned our focus to Arlington, Texas, where the battle of establishing the run happened with two teams that are like really similar. You know, I, I went into the game thinking, man, these two teams are really alike. You know, Dak Prescott and Russell Wilson are both quarterbacks that can scramble around and extend plays. They both have like run game philosophies. They both have first round running backs and they both have defenses that they can really rely on. So it, it was really interesting to see this game play out the way it did. And I think, you know, Seahawks Twitter, which has gained a little bit of fame because of those like crazy hype videos, uh, really nails the point when they, they basically saw this game unfold where the Seahawks were so committed to establishing the run that they ignored something that was doing really, really well. And I don't want to take away from the Cowboys because they played really well and Dak Prescott in the clutch really came through. Uh, and, and he did last time in the playoffs, if you remember in that 2016 game against the Packers, he came through and he scored, he just scored too fast, and then Aaron Rodgers did his thing. But I, I think really what it came down to was the philosophy that got the, the Seahawks here betrayed them. They were not able to run, it was floundering, the, the Cowboys really won in that regard, and credit to them, you know, they won with Leighton Vander Esch and a, a stout defensive line up front, they won in the run game. Um, that said, the fact that the Seahawks allowed the game to be decided in spurts of two and three yards is, I really think, on them. And they gave Dallas the opportunity to win there, and Dallas took it. Uh, on the other hand, on the outside, you know, Tyler Lockett was really on fire, and so was Doug Baldwin. They had an amazing deep passing game, and we talked about that in the, in the preview. We said, you know, these guys are white hot, and if the game goes through them, the Seahawks will win, and the Seahawks just kind of, like, willfully ignored what they did well, and instead did what they wanted to do. And I think we've seen a lot of teams do that. I'm kind of worried that this whole, like, we need to run more thing with Mike Zimmer is going to turn into that, but I, I hope that we can look at that game and say, listen, do what you're good at, not what you want to be good at. I think that's a lesson we can all take from the Seahawks losing in Dallas. But now Dak Prescott and the Cowboys get to go to Los Angeles. I'm actually going to be at that game. I'm really excited. And we'll see if that vaunted Dallas defense, that Dallas defense that's just really been on fire all year, is uh, is going to be able to stymie the Sean McVay, you know, 11 personnel all the time. I can't wait to preview that, preview that game because I really like what the Rams do and I can't wait to talk about it. But we'll save that for the Thursday episode of the show. There was a, a game theory moment in the game that I kind of want to address uh, before we move on to the Sunday games. So the situation was that the Seattle Seahawks needed to go down and score and then get the ball back and score again to win, right? So there's two ways you can do that, right? You go score and then afterwards you can uh, kick the ball away, try to get a stop. Or you can try to onside kick and then you run the risk of the, the Cowboys scoring or, or you know, you, you give them better field position, make it easier for them to put the game away entirely. So you kind of get this like decision point, right? Do I trust the defense to stop them if we give them a short field? Or do I put the game in the defense hands by giving them a long field and making them absolutely, they 100% have to make one stop. And the Seahawks elected to kick it deep and go with the latter of those options. But it's a very interesting moment because I don't think we think about that decision very often. We usually think, all right, if you know you don't have, if you can't get a stop, or if, if it's late in the game and you're down two scores, you got to score onside score. And I think that you know in earlier years that that was a better idea. But the rules have changed with uh, the kickoffs. You know, you can't get a running start anymore. That was really helpful toward onside kicks. And you have to line up in a certain way where you have half of your players on one side, half of your players on the other. So you can't just like crowd one side. Um, the onside kick is kind of dead. 
a lot of people were tweeting about that during the game. Uh, the Seahawks basically said, listen, we're never going to get this. We never get this. And by the way, our kicker is hurt, so we're just going to try to make a stop. That's our best chance to win. Um, and, and I think that that is understandable considering the, the like how much the rule changes hamper you. But on the other hand, think about what the Cowboys would do if they do get that onside kick, right? They probably, you know, will run the ball. If they get a first down and they run out the clock, you lose either way, right? So that scenario doesn't really matter in terms of this decision. The scenario has to be, all right, you stopped them, but they got close enough or because of the onside kick, they were close enough to kick a field goal. Um, that wouldn't really hurt you that much. You were down two. The score was 22 to 24 at the time. So if they kick a field goal and go up five, you you can still win the game. And of course, it's harder to win when you need a touchdown versus when you need a field goal. But you're weighing this against, you know, is it harder to win when you just give the other team the ball back versus giving yourself an opportunity to get it? So if, if the onside kick were not such a nerfed play and such a, like, stymied option that the new rules have made it, like, almost impossible. I think we had, like, maybe two onside kick recoveries this whole season. Um, then maybe it would have been a better idea to go for the onside kick and, and try to give yourself a chance to turn this game around instead of keeping yourself behind the eight ball all the time. I get why the Seahawks did it. I don't think I would have done it differently, but it is kind of sad to see the play go away the way that it's going and maybe the kickoff will be abolished as is we'll go with the Greg Schiano idea of instead of it being a kickoff make it a fourth and 15 where you can either punt from fourth and 15 or you can try to go for it most teams would still punt all the time but you know the fourth and 15 climactic try to get the ball back play is pretty interesting um I don't think I think that would be a pretty radical way for the league to go and we've got a long time before they're that aggressive about things but the kickoff in its entirety has been kind of washed away and diluted as the rule changes keep coming to try to make one of the most dangerous plays in the league safer. Uh, it was an interesting moment on a national stage that really highlighted an issue that the NFL is dealing with, and I wanted to touch on that. So that's going to do it for the Saturday games. We're going to take a break, and I will see you in a minute with the Sunday games. And we are back. So there are two more games to discuss on the Sunday that defense wins championships died as a cliche. I mean, probably not people will say it a lot, but the two best defenses in the NFL lost on Sunday. And that's a really interesting thing to look at, you know, to a team in the Chargers that are pretty adept on offense. And, and that win isn't nearly as surprising as, you know, losing again to the Nick Foles Eagles who have some weird playoff magic. And I'm excited to see how far into the playoffs that they go. But first, let's talk about Ravens Chargers. So I got this one really wrong in the preview. I, I'm definitely not afraid to admit that. You know, I talked a lot about what the Ravens do and how they kind of only have one play, but that play has so many different options built into it that it's kind of one playbook that just always only starts the same. Uh, and it requires a lot of really good gap discipline. And, and I, where I was wrong is not believing that the Chargers would be able to do that. They have a way better defense than I was giving them credit for. And they were able to do that really soundly. And it's part of why Lamar Jackson got off to such a bad start. And once the Ravens realized that the Chargers were like stopping the meat and potatoes of their offense, they had to start trying new things. And when you have a rookie quarterback in his first playoff game, as we talked about with the whole Deshaun Watson situation, that was that that's a disaster waiting to happen. There was a tweet in during the game from uh, Bucky Brooks, who's a, an NFL analyst. He was a scout for a long time. The guy generally knows what he's talking about. That basically said, listen, what they're doing with Lamar Jackson is not what Lamar Jackson is equipped to do. You know, he is way better at making a certain kind of throw. I'll tweet it or I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. 
Um, and, and I think that he, he had a point, but at the same time, what are you supposed to do if you're John Harbaugh and the Ravens, right? They are taking away what Lamar Jackson does well, and they really learned their lesson from the Week 16 loss, which... I really was pretty stupid to say that they wouldn't, right? Anthony Lynn is a very good coach. I didn't give him nearly enough credit. Uh, but that really is why the game got to the point that it did, where it was, you know, 20-3, to and it really seemed over. And the Ravens managed to mount a pretty good comeback. But I think that kind of thing tricks us as fans a lot. I think as, as a coach, you know, Anthony Lynn, he understood what was going on, right? He wasn't just telling his defense to, to let up. And they did get beat on a few plays, specifically that first touchdown where Casey Hayward just got beat down the sideline and it was like an easy wide open touchdown. Obviously that's not supposed to happen, but they made those plays take a little too long and you put the Ravens in a situation where they only had like 50 seconds at the end of the game. And I think when you have a defense that's playing well against a rookie quarterback, as a head coach, I'll take that situation every time. And in this case, it worked out for the Chargers. You know, the Mike Zimmer does this a lot too on defense. And it's something that we talk about a lot with like the prevent and we all hate the prevent defense. The point of it is to just make drives take too long, right? Just don't let them score quickly. If they score, they score, but you're ahead three scores, right? You've got some to give and you're just trying to win the game. You're not trying to blow them out um, unless you're like Sean Payton or Bill Belichick, in which case do your thing. But you, you know, a W is a W. They all count the same. So if you can make it so that they take too long to score, and if they take the bait, if they take the middle of the field throws that you're giving them and then you tackle them right away and they take way too long to score, you have a better chance to win versus trying to play them straight up where your guys could get beat. Now, that's the philosophy, and I tried to explain it in earnest as best I can. Personally, I fall more on the Sean Payton, Bill Belichick side of things, A, because those are all-time great coaches, but you know those that philosophy is, I think when you're the better team, the better way to win. Just beat them up, right? Make a statement. And and your players will believe in you for it as well. Like that kind of thing in a playoff environment where the energy is so different, like we just talked about, is going to matter, I think. Uh, in a way that we as a community of analysts and fans and experts uh, can't really measure yet. But I, I really do think that it exists. So Lamar Jackson's going to have a long offseason where they go back and look at it. You know, the extensions toward John Harbaugh look a lot worse. They, he was like almost, there, there was talk of firing him before Lamar Jackson and that whole like turnaround happened. Um, I, I still don't think he's going to get fired, right? You can't do it based off of one game, although stranger things have happened. Um, but the Ravens are going to have to go into their offseason really thinking long and hard about what they want to do at the quarterback position. Um, a lot of people are going to talk about how Joe Flacco never came into this game. Uh, I don't know the way that Joe Flacco was playing earlier in the year, if that really was going to work. Um, that said, again, the playoffs have a different energy and Joe Flacco plays different in the playoffs. Maybe it was worth a shot. It's going to be a long, long discussion and Ravens uh, community is going to have a long time to talk about it. But let's move on to the final game, Bears-Eagles. This is the one that uh, I'm actually kind of glad we watched them and uh, the the, the day that we didn't have to watch the Vikings lose in the playoffs, um, it was another defensive struggle. We had so many defenses go on, this time with the Bears and an Eagles defense that's pretty stacked with talent, um, and it really took a long time for the game to get going, and, and similarly to the Chargers game, and credit to the Chargers offense, I think it was Tony Romo that said this, maybe Jim Nance, in that game that every yard was challenged, every inch was difficult for them to come by. And they got 23 points and ended up making that, you know, enough to win. And I think, you know, same credit to the Eagles where every single 
inch that they had to get was contested. Akeem Hicks was playing out of his mind. I, I would be very concerned about him if, if I were ever going to play against him in the playoffs because he really ascended and rose to the occasion. Um, I think Alshon Jeffrey rose to the occasion in his revenge game against the Bears. He even kind of like waved in some booze. He was having a lot of fun out there. Um, and I think, you know, Nick Foles is another guy who kind of rises to the occasion in the playoffs. That different energy has really been a huge boon to him. So this one came down to a pretty familiar situation for Vikings fans, right? The Eagles, they go down, they get a good score, and you get maybe 50 seconds for your second-year quarterback to go drive down. All you need is a field goal. He was able to do that, set up for a really nice uh, 45-yard opportunity off of a nice drive, and Cody Parkey, just like how many times he did all throughout the season, doinks it off the upright. Double doink, actually. It hits the upright, hits the crossbar, bounces back. Eagles win. And here's the thing. I I know as fans, we have a lot of resentment towards both of these teams, both because the Bears are a division rival. Of course, we're supposed to hate them, but also because of the Eagles and the way the season ended last year and the fact that, like, of all the teams, they're the ones that took the playoff spot that we couldn't clinch for ourselves and, like, they just own us. Sam Bradford trade, even going back to the coin flip, um, you know, there's a lot of reasons for Vikings fans to hold resentment toward the Eagles. I personally don't, really. Uh, I'm more of... I I find myself a lot less inclined to buy into that kind of rabid, we hate this team, we love this team kind of nonsense, and I'm I'm really more interested in looking at why things happen on the football field, looking at the chess match and evaluating. But as Vikings fans, we really got to have a little bit of sympathy, right? We have been exactly here before, and here is the future for the Bears that, I don't know, the petty side of me would love, but I would also just hate to see it for a kid that, you know, seems to have his head on straight, is that Mitch Trubisky never has a defense like this again, right? It's really hard to sustain defense like that. His play on the field gets figured out, and the whole thing where, like, he just scrambles and wins games that way, defenses figure it out, and he never gets back to the playoffs, and he flames out of Chicago, and then you're gonna get a whole bunch of, like, he never won a playoff game narratives about Mitch Trubisky's legacy until the next time he gets into the playoffs and has a chance to win a playoff game. And I don't think that's really earned because Mitch Trubisky did what a quarterback is expected to do to win a playoff game, and the kicker messed it up. A 45-yard field goal is good enough, in my opinion. I I think being able to set your team up in that situation, it's like a 90% kick. So setting your team up in a situation where you have 90% to win doesn't mean that you did poorly just because the kicker doinked it off the upright. That's just uh, a philosophy that I hold. It's the whole results over process thing that we talk about a lot on this show. Um, and, and I would really give Mitch Trubisky credit for at least that drive well played. Now, the rest of the game, I don't think he was very together. There were like three dropped interceptions that I saw. There could have been more that I missed. Um, and I, I think if they did win and went into Los Angeles, I'd feel pretty good about the Rams as the Rams watching that game. But now the Eagles go into the Superdome, and that's a buzzsaw. Uh, we'll talk a lot more about that game on the Thursday show when we break it down, but that's going to be a really, really hard place for Nick Foles to go in and win, especially considering that they got undressed by the Saints once this year. That said, you know, rematches of the regular season very rarely go exactly the way they went then, as they do in the playoffs, so we'll see how that game turns out. Nick Foles has a weird playoff magic about him, and who's to say that this isn't going to be another run? Um, Can't wait to see all of those games. Uh, Ultimately, you know, good win for the Eagles. They lucked out, but they also played really well, held the Bears to only 15 points, and I think that it's pretty clear that, that of the teams that deserved to be in the playoffs, the Eagles needed it more than the Vikings did. The Vikings couldn't beat the Bears in two chances. Eagles did it in their one. Uh, that is not the best evidence analytically, but 
in terms of which team you feel better about going into the Superdome and winning, I definitely feel better about the Eagles. The Vikings have a lot of problems that they have to work out. And as the week goes on, we will continue to cover what they do to work out those problems. But that's going to do it for this show. Thank you for uh, hanging out with me, talking wildcard weekend, talking offensive coordinators. I will be back tomorrow. And we will talk a little bit more uh, focused on the Vikings and what their future holds. I will see you next time. And skull. Hey, sports fans. My name is Ben Beacon. I'm the host of Locked On Wolves, the Minnesota Timberwolves podcast on the Locked On NBA Network. The Wolves might be in the middle of what's turned out to be a pretty miserable season, but there's still plenty to talk about. From the aftermath of the trade deadline to looking ahead at what moves Gerson Rosas and the front office might be planning for the summer to the possibility that all-star snub Carl Anthony Towns could go off on any given night, it's still going to be a fun spring. Tune into Locked On Wolves daily, Monday through Friday. I'm Ben Beacon with Locked On Wolves, and we'll catch you next time.